Episode 27 of The Passive Hang. Remember, if you haven't already, check out thepassivehang.com where I'm building it up to be a resource for all you crazy movement enthusiasts. I've started with the Library of Locomotion, which features tips and tutorials on movements to get you started with that locomotion practice. Check it out now, thepassivehang.com. Thanks everyone for joining once again to The Passive Hang. This is episode 27, I think now. I'm going to have to double check that. And I've got Scott White on the podcast, who is IF Physio on Instagram. And you reside in Perth. You are a, well, I guess, yeah, I'll maybe hand it over to you. How, how do you describe yourself as to what you do? Yeah. Oh, man. Good question. Um, so by trade, uh, I'm a physiotherapist, um, but I, I think I'm operating in in a way that would traditionally be considered non-conventional, um, although uh, now, particularly in the last few years, there's a lot more robust scientific support for the sort of approach to physiotherapy that I have, which is um, basically a movement and education approach mm-hmm. um, and I'm also a, a yoga teacher I mean I've explored a lot of different movement disciplines as well but I would say primarily that I would consider myself a yoga practitioner um, although that, that word yoga is a little bit uh, difficult to define and it's quite a broad word too so that maybe that really doesn't convey to people what I actually do um, but um, if you if you want to pin me down and ask me what I do, I'm like, well, okay, I'm a physiotherapist and I, uh, I'm a yoga teacher. And I guess my, one of my main focuses is um, using, using yoga and, and other contemplative techniques in a therapeutic way. Um, but then again, there's, there's a spectrum too. So uh, most people, or a lot of people will start with therapy and then they'll go on to discover that the, there's a massive scope there improving well-being well beyond their pre-injury status and exploring this whole new world of um, uh, movement and discovering what their body's true capabilities are so um, yeah kind of that in a nutshell Um, Mm. does that does that make sense yeah um, I think it's really funny about these labels right they can be very helpful for people to understand sort of like what you do, but then in another sense, like what you said, if you were to say physio and yoga, I'm sure it'd be very different potentially from what some people may think physio and yoga may be. Right. Uh, yeah. Guess- you you kind of need to take some time to actually define those terms yourself mm. because um, yoga is kind of like a term like sport, it, you know, you could say you're, you play sport and that could mean you play chess or you play, you know, rugby league and they've got very little in common with each other. Um, so, uh, yeah, when I say that I, I practice yoga, then that, that doesn't convey much at all. And I, I kind of need like a brief sentence or a few mm. sentences <laughs> or a paragraph after that <laughs> to really nut down exactly what I'm talking about there because there's just so many styles and disciplines and um and different lineages and traditions and then and then the way that the um modern society has interacted with this idea of yoga 
has also splintered off a whole bunch of different incarnations of um, you know the way people perceive that word too. So mm. uh, I guess we'll, we'll we can get into that at some point as we go along. <laughs> But I guess then for people, if they were to view your practice and what you do, mm. like your, yourself, I guess, how would you describe that practice? What would that look like? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, what? this is, this is interesting um, coming on, on your podcast because I've, I've, you know, been listening to your episodes and um, you've, your audience, uh, I'm thinking, um is coming a lot more from like the movement direction and when i when i go on podcasts or like i've been on a couple um that uh where the audience base is is a yoga base then the way that i would describe what i do would, would be different because people mm. come from different points of reference so um i think from the perspective i'm, I'm going to try and tackle this one from the perspective of you know your listeners who are coming from moving background and maybe they've been training with Edo and stuff um and and i i'm also sort of familiar with this uh anti-yoga sentiment that comes from that, <laughs> <laughs> that, that angle um so okay the way that i would sort of describe what i'm doing and what i consider to be quote unquote traditional yoga practice is um i think is actually kind of very similar to what is happening in this kind of movement culture at the moment and if you look historically at where these poses originated from they originated in this very uh creative context where people had some objectives and the the practice was uh, used in a way to, to try and facilitate those objectives. So it was a very like ground up kind of process. So you have maybe an objective is to decrease suffering and, uh, you know, improve well-being. And um, there is a contemplative aspect to the, to the practice as well. So it's um, also about changing your relationship with your, your consciousness too. And there's a variety of ways of doing that. So within the yoga tradition, the, they primarily looked at using, uh, manipulating the body in order to, to alter uh, the mind and, and the subjective experience. Um, so within that tradition, there are um, more physically oriented practices where there was breath work um, and there was strong physical poses and there was this concept of um, tapas or austerity um, where you would uh, engage in like a strong disciplined practices for a long period of time mm -hmm. in order to, to try and change some habitual thought patterns and subsequent behaviors and then uh, um so that, that was sort of over to the left, to, to the right, you had um, this monastic tradition that sort of um, thought less favorably of physical practices and more focused purely on, on meditation. Um, so there was, there's, historically, there's been a little bit of tension between these two groups, um, but I, I tend to favor uh, over there on the left, uh, which the the basis for the, the physical practice came out of um, tantric Buddhism and tantric Hinduism. So 
it was actually a pushback against this monastic model, which basically tried to, um, I guess, renounce the body. Mm-hmm. And in, in my view, it's a little bit of a dualistic way of um, interacting with our consciousness because I think that there's not really a, a valid way of separating our consciousness from our body because it's an epiphenomenon of our body. Mm. Um, so I've always been attracted to this idea of being able to use this vehicle that we've got, manipulate our uh, breathing and alter our heart rate and then gain some conscious voluntary control over some processes that are typically seen to be more autonomic mm-hmm. um, and then using, using that as a vehicle to change consciousness. And, and, you know, it's different for everyone. And I think there are different personalities will be drawn to different ways of engaging in that and solving that problem. Um, but for me, it's um, using creative ways of trying to find better ways of, of moving, um, better ways of holding myself in positions that will alter my heart rate and my breathing rate, some of these autonomic systems. Um, and they just feel really good. So um, I think there are some inbuilt um and this is just a byproduct of the, the evolutionary process we get reward mechanisms um, you know from our brain and when we do certain things that require concentration and mm. uh, and, and, and discipline i think as an organism if you have some sort of a, a an endorphin response to a period of long concentration you're probably going to be better or more inclined to concentrate longer and i think from an evolutionary perspective this could be related to problem solving in relation to hunting or gathering food or you know finding ways of interacting in society and in a a complex world Um, so those those regulatory mechanisms in our brain are there and the the yoga practices at least the, the traditional yoga practices that you might see in in the original texts um were the, the you know some of the first attempts at really figuring out what's going on with the body and and, mm. and i've got a lot of respect for that tradition because these people went to great lengths to really discover what the the true potential was and, and they were engaging in practices that would make our practices look um very tame in comparison you know nine hours mm. of breath work per day this kind of thing three hours of pranayama mm morning midday and midnight something like that mm. um so yeah, anyway there's there's a lot to be gained by looking at the uh the hist- the historical context and then using that as a way of um, informing your practice as opposed to this top down view which might be i have a, a regime or i've given been given some poses by my instructor and i'm just going to do those mm. um which is more of a um a you know proscriptive way of solving a problem um versus you know but that, to, to be honest I, I do a blend of both because you, you need some structure to begin with yeah like you, you have to learn from at some point you have to figure it and then figure the rest out yeah a lot of what you said um really reminds me even of like how ito has talked about being in the body and like the dualistic view how that isn't really a thing and that we are just like you know one as the mind and the and, and the body and when i've talked to others as well there's 
like you're talking about yoga in this way of like using this physical practice almost to develop like the, the self. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and that's similar, but what I find with a lot of movement practitioners as well, like it's not just about pure physical development, although that is a primary vehicle, but it's almost about like really using that to understand more about these qualities of within yourself. So it's kind of funny, like I, I wanted to, you know, maybe jump straight into that point where you said, you know, maybe there's this anti-yoga type feeling sometimes yeah. going on. Like, why do you think mm. that is? Like, what do you think is maybe, is there a misconception with how people view yoga, which is causing this? Yeah, I think that's, it's multifactorial. I think one would be um, a, a misconception of what that term actually denotes. Mm. So that would be like one conversation. Then uh, a, another um, reason I think it's there is um, I, I think because of perhaps the influence, the, like the big influence of the uh, like the LA yoga scene, um, like the Los Angeles yoga scene, which is you know became like very commercialized and very op and um, and there are, I, I also, um, just in, in looking at the way that they're instructing, um, I, I think it's perhaps they're employing techniques that are suboptimal, um, but they've been sort of like, I don't know, packaged in a certain way that looks very glossy, but if you sort of dig a little bit, um, you realize that, you know, that there are some issues with yoga certification is very easy now to get a yoga teacher training certificate sometimes you can just get like a two-week do a two-week training course in bali mm. and then you'll be given this yoga instructing certificate there's, there's a lack of standardization um, in courses and and that th this leads to like a very diluted and um you know potentially low quality subset of the, this you know yoga community so uh, I'm not surprised that perhaps when people have interacted with um, yoga teachers or they've had, uh, they've gone to a class and, and you know, the, the quality control issue is a problem. Mm. Um, whereas, you know, <laughs> I guess if you want to um, consider yourself to be an Ido portal uh, uh, teacher, that, you know, obviously there's a little bit more of a stringent um, standardization process that's involved there. And um, there's people who are making sure that there is, you know, like a, a certain quality is met before you're, you're kind of allowed to, to teach them the method. And I, I think that that exists there in the yoga community as well in certain little pockets mm. where you'll have like really good quality instruction, but it's, um, uh, it's kind of the wild west, really. You, mm. you, you just you, you have to be very careful and um, seek out knowledgeable teachers, which can be quite hard. And again, because it's just like a, it's a kind of a free for all. So I think there's that, and and then maybe the third thing is that some of the lineages have, ironically, become very dogmatic and very rigid in their approaches. Mm. And I say ironically because um, the, the original teachers of those lineages were very creative and very innovative and were using um, 
experimentation to come up with some of these sequences but then as they translated these sequences to their students rather than adopting the approach of this kind of creativity that created the sequences in the first place mm -hmm. they just absorb these sequences as gospel and then stuck to those and if you move outside of that world that's you know you're you're no longer part of this lineage you can't do that that's not allowed mm. um so and, and i think maybe that stems from this 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 need to, to standardize as well i mean mm. if you want to roll out like a feature training format like you kind of have to have stuff written down and the moment you start trying to systematize something then potentially and you know unless it's communicated very well that there is uh a, a creative and innovative changeable component to it it can be absorbed in a black and white way and so i'm not surprised that there is a little bit of an an anti-yoga sentiment if people have found themselves in in those sort of lineages where you sort of you want to do a different pose or do something differently um it's not encouraged in in the class the, the in you know creative and uh uh, intuitive way of trying to adapt something to your own body isn't isn't encouraged. I think that potentially is a problem. Yeah, does that make sense? This this top down prescriptive approach, I think, is you know not unique to yoga, right? It's probably within a, in a lot of systems which start gaining popularity. You know, even within movement and let's say like body weight training for example you know there's a mm. there there those like technical specialists who really gloss over like how exactly a certain specific form is is produced like the handstand push-up right and that's probably similar yeah. to what you're saying here in, in yoga um so i find that really interesting mm. um you know mm. if, with your exploration like I, i've seen you know you've dug from historical texts that sort of thing you know a common one people might always say and maybe this is a nice one for you to address is like you know yoga mm. has it has no hanging has no pulling you're just like on the mat and you're pushing all the time is that as well yeah. just a complete misconception or what's your take on that yeah cool that, that's a very good topic so um it's the way that i would interpret that is that when someone has used the term yoga in that context um but perhaps they are referring to um quote unquote modern yoga or, or their their modern conception of yoga which is usually informed by what they've seen perhaps in the class that they've been to in the class may have been at the local gym or they've gone to the yoga school maybe they've done yoga for six months and um, <clears throat> i know a few guys that have started um with yoga and then moved into the the movement world so their understanding of what yoga is and when they use that term um they're, they're basically applying that term to their their own experience and their own experiences usually in the in the modern context and you don't need to go very far back in uh history maybe even just um so the first text where you see rope asanas so in in yoga the asana is the sanskrit term for posture um so rope asanas will be revealed in this text called the Sri Tatravandi, um, which was published in the 18th century. So we're talking 1700s. And that text was based on an original text, which was published, um, I think, a century or two earlier, which was called uh, Hatha Abhyasa Parati. Um, 
and that manual um, also contains all these, I think, geez, how many rope poses? So I think there's like, you're testing my, my memory now, but there, there was over a hundred um, poses in this manual. And of that, there were like 16 rope exercises, which involved climbing, um, hanging, ones that you were, you know, a skin the cat movement. Mm. It's like specifically described in this text. Um, there's climbing, you know, lotus position where you sit in a lotus and you'll climb up a rope. You hang a weight, grab hold of a weight in your mouth. It's like, it's like a weighted climb. Um, hang upside down and climb upside down. Um, so, and, and that, that's just in that small little text. This, this is a text from South India. So I think it was, um, the Sri Tatravandi was first found in, in Mysore and there's a copy of that, like a transcript of that in, in Pune in India. Um, so this is sort of the South Indian tradition. And, but for some reason, those poses weren't passed on. My feeling is that, um, so there's a, a, a teacher who is kind of the, um, the kind of the grandfather for, for modern yoga. His name's Krishnamacharya. And then he taught some, some major teachers that have basically shaped modern yoga as we know it today. Mm. So he taught a guy called BK Sayangar and he taught a guy called Tabi Joyce. And he taught a guy called Desikachar and, and a few others as well. And there's no rope asanas there. Although Iyengar, he used rope asanas. He, he figured out um, that there was this old text that had them in there and he, he got himself a copy of it and he started using some of them in his, in his teachings. But the others, and then probably one, one of the most common and popular um, styles of yoga is, is Ashtanga Vinyasa and that contains no rope asanas. My feeling is that um, Krishnamacharya, when he taught Patabi Joyce these sequences, often it was done on the road. So they'd go and they'd do these demonstrations in different towns. There's a bit of a backstory to this, but back in, you know, hmm. the 1920s and 1930s, um, yoga was becoming a little bit of a lost art in India as India was becoming like rapidly modernized and industrialized. And there was this big push for independence from, from British colonialism. Hmm. And uh, some of these ancient techniques were seen as a little bit archaic to in the modern progressive Indians who want independence from British rule and they wanted their nation to become you know, a progressive industrialized nation. Um, so Krishnamacharya was involved in trying to popularize some of these old techniques um, to Indian mm. and he'd have to do some traveling shows with his students. And when they would travel, they wouldn't have access to any equipment. So he'd have to do the performances, you know, on stage somewhere. And it would just have to be body weight exercises. He couldn't bring the ceiling mm. ropes with him because it'd just be out in the middle of somewhere. So Patabi Joyce was involved in a few of these demonstrations. And I, I think that's why the rope and the hanging stuff got lost from yoga. But yeah, you just like dig, dig a little bit. Don't need to go too far. There's this whole range of super interesting stuff that resembles what's going on in the movement world today, which I find kind of cool because I guess... And I think I actually heard Ido himself mention this, that, you know, we're not really inventing anything new. We're just rediscovering stuff that was already invented a long time ago by humans who were exploring mm. movement. Yeah, I find that really super fascinating. And, you know, especially yoga where it's got this deep, rich, documented history as well, which you can access. It's mm. like amazing, right? But then at these specific points where, you know, 
whether whatever you described it actually happened or not with how rope um, arsenals like disappeared it's kind of funny mm. that because of that context maybe it just stripped away a whole a whole like side of that physical development from that whole culture i find that like amazing but i remember i went on your mm. page and i saw some of your moves as well like i think there was one called the chariot and that is yep. like pretty much the exact same as like a grass cutter in b-boying or um quarter capium in in capoeira and you're like that's right yeah, yeah it's you know you see these like you mentioned the skin the cat and you see it and you're like yeah maybe technical points is like a little bit different but at the mm. core of it it's like the same thing and it's, it's yeah amazing to see that that from culture to culture there are these there are these links there that's it's i find it wild right because you know south america or you know um if we want to trace capoeira back to africa where before you know was introduced into south america um, didn't really have much cross-pollination or, or cultural influence from india though they're quite separate geographical hmm. um gene pools and cultural um they're quite culturally isolated from one another historically in that regard so to see um movements that you know especially kind of creative movements like that the chariot or um you know that swing the leg through I, I guess if you just leave people to their own devices for long enough and they want to explore movement over a long enough period of time they're going to start to resemble one another and someone's going to figure out how to do a backbend I was going to figure out how to stand up on their hands, mm. um, stretch forward, stretch to the side, twist, turn, move like a monkey, whatever. <laughs> Someone's going to try it and give it a go. And then it's going to develop into a system. And, uh, and those systems are going to like look similar for a long enough period of time. You're going to, someone's going to figure out how to run. Someone's going to figure out how to swim, whether they live in Polynesia or they live in England, mm. you know? So yeah, it's, um, it's cool in that regard. And th I think that's why this, the, the anti-yoga thing is a little bit, of a misconstrual because at, at, at the core, if, if you want to look at like the underlying ethos of these different practices, whether it's capoeira or yoga, the underlying core is innovative, creative exploration. Mm. And the problem is when the, the dogma gets kind of inserted in there at some mm. point, or these teachings get kind of misinterpreted, um, you know, then, then you're going to have an issue. Um, so yeah. that's that's my take on on the sort of yoga that I I teach and practice. Yeah, mm, yeah. I think we all have to be wary of this dogma, right? And just keep on approaching things always with this open mind, even as you get deeper into this art. And like you have to get this deepness right as well to learn. But then also maybe once you get deeper, it's more easier to get attached to. And then say, you know, when you see other things, uh, maybe that's that's not so good. That's I think always something to be wary of. But you know, yeah. you you mentioned say how modern yoga is sort of developed in this way. But you practice, uh, yeah. From what I'm gathering, like your view on yoga is quite different. So how mm. did that? How did that happen? How did you break free? How did you become curious in this way? Uh, well, I, you know what? I think in some sense, it, it is human nature to, to want this prescriptive, perfect thing be given to you on a plate, you know? Mm. And so, um, yeah, I, I wasn't immune to that sort of thinking when I first started. And so I, but, but I also had a bit of a unique entry into yoga um 
Well, actually not, not that unique. As you mentioned, a lot of people come to these movement practices, whether they're yoga or, or whatever, because they're, they have an injury or they have some chronic persistent pain. So, so that was my um, angle in there. So um, when I was in my early 20s, so I'm talking like um, 22, 23, 24, uh, I was really quite disabled with um, persistent pelvic pain. Mm. Um, to the point where, you know, I was really struggling with just everyday activities. Uh, walking was was a problem for me and I had quite a noticeable limp in my gait. Um, and even just getting into the shower at, at the time when it was like particularly bad, I was living with a friend and he had like a high shower recess and, you know, I, I was so guarded and um, cautious and apprehensive with my, my movement and I had such a high degree of sensitization in my nervous system that you know like i needed a chair to kind of swivel into the shower and stand up mm. and um just very small things would would provoke um quite elevated pain levels in me you know if i had to get out of a car at an awkward angle because someone parked too close and I, I just couldn't get my leg and i'd have to pull my leg up to like past 90 degrees and something would click in my hip and then i'm like ah oh, then my nervous system would just ramp that up and mm. we can talk about the drivers of persistent pain um perhaps a bit later but i, I was um a quite disabled persistent pain patient and i went down the, the usual um biomedical path that really really disappoints me that is that it's even there um, and that it's given as a valid option for people who are in pain. Um, so we're talking, you know, um, early referrals for scans, MRIs, which I got that showed, you know, some findings which were completely normal, but they were, you know, used in a sort of scary way to describe my mm. discomfort crappy non-reliable tests of pelvic stability where I was given, you know, the label of pelvic instability and given crappy non-evidence-based treatments like sacroiliac joint belts told that I needed to have my pelvis fused because it was mm. moving around and shearing every time I walked and uh, three cortisone injections into the pubic symphysis, which I do not recommend because that is a, not a nice anatomical area to get yeah. like a 12 gauge needle put in there and then filled with cortisone. And, and in fact, those, <laughs> those interventions actually just sensitize my nervous system even more. Mm-hmm. because I, they're, they're invasive and, and they, they freaking hurt. And so when you have someone who already is quite, um, uh, has hyperalgesia, which is, you know, like an increased sensitivity to, to discomfort. Um, and I was like a little bit allodonic as well, which, you know, I would feel discomfort when there was really no genuine tissue damage there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you, you stick needles in there. It, that really caused me problems. And, and I, I could could spend the entire podcast walking through all the different non-evidence-based treatments that I had from going and seeing chiropractors to actually quite well-renowned physios, which is disappointing mm. and getting bullshit advice and treatment from them. And uh, there's this little kind of like merry-go-round, medical merry-go-round that you can go on. So um, my attempt to get out of that, um, I, I actually caught up, this is the story. I caught up with a friend that I went to uni with. We studied together and she looked at me and, you know, I was quite fit when I was at uni and um, I was quite athletic and, you know, I used to play like high level soccer and football and um, surfed and, and she saw me and I'd like lost all this weight, um, could barely walk around at all. She was like, man, you 
just need to get out of this. She was like, get this book, Explain Pain by Laura Mosley. And like, you just need to kind of get moving and you might need to take some pain. This, this is her advice. She said, you, you may need to take some pain medication just to, you know, kind of get going because you're, you're in this kind of chronic pain thing. And this was back in like 2008. So I think that book was only published a couple of years earlier. Mm. And a lot of this pain science research from Laura Mosley was very new. You know, I, I didn't get taught any of it at uni. So I was a physio at the time. Oh, so you were right studying up. as well, like physiotherapy during this whole process as well? No, I would actually already graduated. So I graduated okay. in 2005 and I, I first started experiencing this persistent pain towards the end of 2006. Um, that must have been really so, frustrating as well, having this like knowledge or formalized knowledge, you know, with the certificate and then trying to it was, like, yeah. diagnose this pain as well and just hitting like walls well it, it as it turns out not only was you know the all the information that i got at uni completely unhelpful for me it in many ways it it would actually kind of made me worse because mm -hmm. i had such strong biomedical structuralist beliefs that i'd been indoctrinated into through learning the anatomy that i learned at uni and learning about pathology but not learning it in any kind of like coherent holistic way with, with zero understanding of pain science. Um, so some of the top, there's some of the really good studies that, that Lorimer, um, for those of you who don't know, Lorimer Mosley is a, quite a well-renowned pain science researcher. And he did a lot of his study in, you know, 2003. And so I was in third year uni then, and you know, the, it hadn't been integrated into the curriculum at all. In fact, it's only like recently, very recently that pain science has started to be integrated into some of the, the curriculums in the different unis around Australia. Um, and still not in a very good way. But in any case, back then, um, uh, yeah, I was a, a physio and I also knew like a lot of the, the physios in the industry, like, so to speak, like I, I thought, at least I thought I knew who I should go and see. So I, you know, like I went and saw physio who was part of the Australian Olympic team. I went and saw a physio who was, you know, part of, um, I don't think I'll give away who it is, but he was you know, part of one of the top AFL football teams here. Um, and, oh, man, I, what, what the, the advice that I got was just so bad and so iatrogenic. In other words, it made me worse. Mm. Um, so my friend seeing this was like, she, she just discovered this book. She was like, you know, maybe you should have a read of this. So I was like, okay, I ordered the book online, got it. And I was like, right, I need some sort of movement um, approach to um, make this theory relevant because one of the missing links in this um, explained pain um, system is that the theory is very good. Um, it all checks out, but then there's, there's no kind of practical method to then uh, integrate that knowledge experientially. Like hmm. I get to the back of the book and it's talking about how the nervous system shapes our pain perception and all this sort of stuff. But then it's like the exercises at the end were just so lame and, and boring and crap. Um, so I was like, right, I need something better than this. It just does not interest me at all. And I happened to be interested in, in yoga and I, I played around with it actually a little bit when I was at, um, at uni and like probably like from first year uni 
first, second, third year, I was like, you know, mucking around with headstands and um, different stretching positions and stuff like that. Um, but then, you know, when fourth year came around, it was just too busy for me to, to do any of that. I was just mostly doing strength, um, strength and conditioning sort of training and, and no mobility stuff, uh, conventional strength and conditioning training, I might add, mm. um, which just made me like very tight, reduced my range of motion and uh, it wasn't, wasn't a healthy way of training. It wasn't very smart. So anyway, I, I had this book, Light on Yoga by BK Sanger who is, um, as I mentioned earlier, one of Krishnamacharya's students. And in the back of his book, he had um, some courses. He, had, he wrote down some therapeutic sequences. And he also had a 300-week course, which is like a six-year course, basically where you start from scratch. And so I, I, I had a crack at it. I was like, right, we'll just start with week one and just try and systematically work my way through this. So, but I was so deconditioned and... Um, this whole kind of pain sensitivity thing that I had going on was, was quite pronounced that it took me three months just to get through week one. Hmm. Um, and before I felt like I was conditioned enough to be able to do it, like, a, you know, I had to kind of build my capacity up very slowly. And um, by about nine months to a year, I think, when was it? It was, it was maybe closer to a year. Um, I was still quite like I still had a limp, but I, I knew like the moment I started this little journey with the, the the poses, I was like, I'm onto something. Like I knew it didn't, it wasn't a quick fix at all. But I was mm. like, I just knew that I had I finally had some direction. Um, the problem with the book though is that, uh, or with any general sequence, it wasn't individualized to me, and uh, I actually have a very different body type to you know, like a young Indian guy who's used a squat toilet since he was um, a kid and, and sits on the floor for every meal cross-legged. So I was really, really tight. My hip muscles, external rotation was really poor. My squatting ability was really bad. And, you know, I, and I was just sore like everywhere. Um, so after when I got to like week 13, after like a year, suddenly it, the... Um, practice started to introduce these lotus poses which are you know like where you place the heel mm -hmm. the foot up on the thigh and there was absolutely no way that that was appropriate for me to try at that point mm. but i'm reading this book and it's like yeah yeah you know and i had developed quite a lot of faith in the the method at that time because it was it really did start to change my life and so I was like, no, no, well, all these other things, stuff has worked for me. Maybe this is what I should do. And so I started trying to play around this load of stuff and then pushed too hard. And then I actually injured my knee. And I heard this big pop while I was trying mm. to do this load and had this quite a swollen knee. And I was like, shit, okay, fuck, now what? Um, I, so I felt a little bit lost there. And uh, I was like, God, and I still had a lot of this sensitization stuff going on. And I really hadn't figured it out. But that's when that's kind of what drove me to finally find a teacher. So I had no faith at that point in outsourcing my treatment to anyone else mm. because every time I went and saw a practitioner, you know, physio, the chiro, the massage therapist, the traditional Chinese person, the, you know, like I flew to Melbourne from Perth to see a quite a well-renowned massage guy over there who apparently worked really well with pelvic pain and every interaction tended to kind of make me worse because kind of sensitize more. It was mostly passive treatment. Hmm. You know, stick needles in here, do cupping here, put an electrotherapy thing here, 
give someone a belt and the language was usually pretty poor, like give me a, a diagnosis of instability and whatnot. Um, so I was very, very apprehensive about letting anyone come near me. Uh, so I had like a lot of fear. Um, but after having this like knee setback, I was like, I, I need to find someone who's very skilled in this. And so I, I, I went online and I looked at, you know, yoga teachers in Perth that taught Iyengar yoga. And I, I was very fortuitous to stumble across this guy in Fremantle who'd been studying Iyengar yoga since the 1970s. And, you know, so he was like in his 60s when I met him. And he'd kind of been around the block a few times already. And he got into yoga back in the 70s with persistent lower back pain. Mm. And he looked at what I was doing and was like, right, Scott, why are you practicing this way? I'm like, oh, it's, it's written here in the book. He's like, no, 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 no. Like the book's great and all, but it's just missing so many things. And so he started to like individualize the teaching for me. And he just had a very, very kind of intuitive style. And what I, I think, ironically, I, I wasn't sure how to take this because I really liked, or thought I, I liked Iinga's style. Hmm. But he was like, mm, yeah, Iinga stuff's great. I did it for like 15 years and then I did Ashtanga for like 10 years. Um, but you know what? Like, yeah, he, what happened to him was he started practicing Iinga method before it was formalized. And then they started to bring in this accreditation where you needed to go through this process to get accredited. And that's when he noticed the dogma come in. So he was a little bit of a rebel in that regard. He was like, mm. oh, I'm just going to like do my own thing now. So he actually had a big influence on me viewing the practice as this kind of malleable, adaptable thing that you can individualize. And he was like, yeah, no, he started practicing some Qigong because he wanted to figure out, you know, um, how to use horse stance and that sort of thing. And he integrated that into the practice, which doesn't exist in any Iyengar curriculum. Hmm. Um, so he had this very integrative, um, adaptive approach where he just borrowed things from some of the different traditions. He kind of blended Iyengar and Shtanga together in an interesting way and then had his own little therapeutic techniques. So I have to give a lot of credit to, to him for having a very open-ended and creative approach to the yoga which is very different to what was happening in all the other schools. Mm. So, um, yeah, just kind of lucky, I think, in, in that regard. And But, but also, it, it worked for me, you know, and I could just see the value in it because before going and seeing him, this is part of the story, I, I went to a couple of these other schools where they had very rigid ways of teaching. And, like, I walked... It's very embarrassing as a guy, and, you know, your early 20s to walk into a yoga class and just not be able to freaking do anything and mm. pull up sore. And I just kind of had to sit there on my mat and just like, fuck it. and you drive home just feeling like shit, I can't even do basic yoga class. It's like very bad for your confidence. Mm. But so if you, I think, you know, if you have persistent pain, having an individualized, uh, a good relationship with your teacher where you can like talk openly about what's happening and they can modify it for you is, is very important. So, so I got that sort of training quite early on um, and that, that's kind of what really helped me. And, and I, I was interested in what was happening in, in pre-modern yoga as well because I want to, I don't know, I just, when I, when I find something that I'm interested in, I, like, I just like to go full nerd on it and just, mm. so I bought all these books on yoga history. I found out who the good scholars were and, and then, you know, like very early on within a couple of years, I, I got this book um, 
the yoga tradition of the Mysore Palace that, that had this you know manuscript from 1700s in there with all the rope asanas on there. And I was like, shit, this is so interesting. Like, why isn't this being taught in modern yoga? And so I started to see there's actually a lot more to the picture than what is presented in, in the various schools as you see them today. Mm. Yeah, bit of, bit of a truncated story there, but um, yeah, I think I got through a little bit of the, of the story. Um, it's a lot, Matt. I could talk to you about this stuff all night, so <laughs> be careful. Tell me when to stop. Uh, just a, a triggering question and then <laughs> we could go on forever but no totally. that's, that's really cool and it's a really powerful story um like we were chatting before the podcast started how you know this this pain and injury narrative is very common i think to a lot of very deep practitioners as well for a lot of us mm-hmm. we search for these answers via a movement practice because we have these like chronic pains or these these sort of acute injuries which really shake us and go okay we need to we need to find a better solution because i mean that that that's it for me as well like i have this like persistent left like hip tension as well which i was like searching for ages for for these for this solution and so you go to yeah like all these physios, these caros, massage therapists, you, you look up and you're like, okay, like this is the one. And then it, it, it's not the one, but then that's almost a gift to you. Like yep. when you look back to it, because now like that's driven me to be, uh, to keep on being curious about, okay, why did mm. that happen? And searching for, for, for answers. And that leads to like, I guess, yeah, this similar perspective that you've sort of cultivated as well. Um, yeah. I want to, to ask you about yeah this the this you mentioned it just briefly about this anatomical view how that can um mm. understanding i guess the the anatomy in it, in it as the a framework maybe presented on a picture or whatever how sometimes mm. maybe that could cloud our judgment as to going okay what is actually happening yeah this, this is a big one i think man i think this is the, the the crux of a lot of the issues that we see today with regards to persistent pain and, and poor pain management um so we we chatted a little bit before as you mentioned and i, I told you that you know i i teach um, anatomy and physiology to yoga teacher trainees who are during their course they need to have an anatomy component as part of that course and so i got approached by a couple of these schools to um, be the anatomy teacher and i was like hmm, kind of very reluctant in, in in some sense to to do that um just as an aside my teacher who who taught me the guy from Fremantle, kale he, he really doesn't know any anatomy and i'm not saying that not knowing anatomy is is the way to go but just as an example he just talks very broadly and generally about movement you know he can't he can't name all the muscles in the body but in no way does that actually take away from his ability to instruct people on how to move so there's a bit of a dichotomy there sometimes between having good quote unquote good anatomical knowledge and being able to translate that into good movement because sometimes it actually makes you worse at teaching movement and not only that um if you it's it's a complicated problem right so um when when you go through uni and i know this is the case for most allied health degrees and it's also the case for medicine as well um and there are some very good 
articles written and editorials written precisely on this problem. So the first couple of years of your degree, you are learning biomedicine. So you're learning anatomy and you're learning pathology, but you learn it in a compartmentalized way. So you, you learn the anatomy, so you learn the muscles and the bones over here in this part of the university campus. And then when we learn psychology, which is part of our degree, we do a few psych units. Um, this is kind of a, an analogy for how fragmented it is. The psych building is over here on the uni. And um, the scene in that way is kind of separate domains. The neuroscience research department is over here. Um, and that's the way that it, it's taught. So I think um, in some sense, what it does is it, it indoctrinates people into viewing the human body in very reductionist terms. And, and so people are, like, like you said before, you know, when, when someone has persistent pain, they are searching for answers to um, explain that. And if they get some anatomical knowledge about the body, it's very easy to map that newfound knowledge onto a problem. So say you have a shoulder pain, just a, it might just be non-specific shoulder pain, but nevertheless, you have a sore shoulder and it hurts when you load it, it hurts when you reach up overhead. Then you do a course on shoulder anatomy and you learn about the rotator cuff muscles and you learn about rotator cuff tears and you learn about bursitis and you learn about um, subacromial impingement. It's very easy to then try and apply that newfound knowledge and use that as a way of explaining your problem. Um, and this is, this is how physio was taught when, when I went through, like I said, now we, it's a bit different now, but I know because I've just employed a couple of new grads recently. And so I know I'm up to date with what the curriculum looks like at the moment. And I have the pain science unit here, but again, it's taught over here. We have pain science, but over here, we're going to teach you how to just push on someone's spine because the cause of their pain is some sort of peripheral um, joint stiffness. And so these graduates are coming out today being very confused about how to treat anyone because the curriculum is so fragmented mm. and there's, there's actually, I mean, this, this is a huge topic, right? There's actually a lot of vested interests in not changing the curriculum too, because the industry as it is now, the physiotherapy industry um, is very reliant on having new graduates who are so to speak skilled in teaching these methods or these techniques, manual therapy techniques, that we know actually don't really work. They have very low effect sizes, often don't outperform placebo, tend to reduce people's sense of self-efficacy, um, don't encourage movement, usually um, tend to increase fear of movement in people. Um, so, and, and I think a lot of this stems from being taught all the different individual muscle attachment points in a very biomechanical way. So you start to view the body as a machine, like a car, and this car analogy is a huge problem because we, we are not like um, a piece of machinery, but like 
biological organism with consciousness mm -hmm. is very different because it's it has self restorative and re repair mechanisms and also the, the conscious input that you get doesn't tend to track what's happening with the body objectively and that that is a big problem because we have very sophisticated scanning technology now that can pick up all kinds of abnormalities so so you with your shoulder when you had no shoulder pain you would probably see rotator cuff tears you'd probably see evidence of bursitis you would see some sort of joint degeneration um you would maybe see labral tears and whatnot and these are actually just normal findings a lot of the time it's just like a normal part of the aging process it's a normal part of using your shoulder is you'll start to have some adaptations mm. for the use and these adaptations actually look like you know they, they look like tears and even the terminology tear when someone hears rotator cuff tear they think that things just cut in half mm. but actually that is not what is happening at all it just means that there's a slight, a slight hole in the tendon the whole thing is still intact and these little holes and these little so-called abnormalities are just found on everyone who's pain-free over a certain age. You get over the age of 20, you start to start to see like joint degeneration, um, facet joint, but early onset facet joint arthritis in the spine. You see bulges in people with no, no pain at all. Um, so we layer on this very precise anatomical knowledge. And then we try and we feel very proud of ourselves for knowing all this intricate anatomy. And it kind of increases this sense of, the special um, place that we have in society when we're a healthcare professional, we know more than, than everyone. We, we try and justify all those years that we spent learning this stuff. In, and we use that to try and explain to people why they have pain. And that explanation misses the psychosocial component. It misses the cognitive drivers of pain. It misses the, um, all the other inputs, environmental inputs into the organism, which produce the, the final output which may be pain which may have nothing to do with the underlying structure but we're so we emphasize the importance of anatomy so much in these degrees that it becomes like uh the golden goose that just always gives us the answer as to why someone's in mm. pain and it, it causes big problems i mean i try to summarize this this issue just now but it, i don't think i did it any justice um because it's it's kind of it's quite convoluted but did that make some sort of basic sense yeah it does um you know it's like this uh this effect of as well if, if you're being told something uh and like it's like the the belief thing right like if you if you told it and you and you believe it then suddenly it almost becomes true within your mind right and then that's almost like if you're giving someone like this di diagnosis as well then then you're almost passing yeah you're passing this belief that you believe to be true to to them who might be i guess your student or your your mm -hmm. patient and then they then carry on that belief and then just be like okay like this 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 is it and this sort of explains yeah. it but then maybe you have that explanation but then you're still stuck in the same position because then you're like okay yeah i have this label tear now um i'm trying to do this stuff about it but is it actually getting better and it becomes yeah. it, it, it potentially becomes this cycle as well because like that what you explained to me sort of reflects 
like some of my journey as well, like understanding more about mm. the body. And normally, yeah, you do start off with like anatomy, right? And you're like mm. looking around at some sort of model with like the muscles and stuff and going, oh, okay, yep. muscles work in this way. Maybe this muscle mm. is not functioning. That's why yes. it's, it's not working. Um, yes. And then, you, yeah, you're still sort of like knocking like on the, on the door going like, oh, but why aren't I fixed yet? Yeah, and it, yes, become, exactly. it can become very frustrating. Yeah, for sure. Because what you know, what our, our brains are doing, they're trying to make models of the world um, based on the information that that you know you're, you're given through your senses. Um, so um, those models will inform how we perceive sensory input. So um, there's a, there's a big move now to use a predictive processing framework to try and explain subjectivity um, and predictive processing is like if, if you guys are interested in that if any listeners are interested then you know i'd recommend some of carl friston's work who's a i think he's the most cited neuroscientist in the world with most amount of research papers published and he holds a whole bunch of credentials um, but his work has been on um, trying to come up with a way that the, the mind works, it's actually based on machine learning and what they're doing in AI at the moment. Um, and basically the idea is that um, the previous way we used to understand how subjectivity worked is that um, the mind was like a passive recipient of sensory information. So you see something, it gets, it hits the retina, the retina converts that into electrochemical impulse, it shoots that to the visual cortex in the brain, and the brain then produces an image. Okay. But what we now know is that the impulse arrives in the brain, but then the brain then acts on that and then tries to make sense of that based on its prior understanding of what the meaning of that sensory data is. Mm. And then it will manipulate that impulse and produce something entirely different if the context is different. So if you are constantly you know been bitten by a snake several times walking down a track and you see a rope on the track your brain will perceive that sensory data so it'll, it'll those photons will hit your retina but what the brain then does with those photons is it'll try and interpret that in a way that is based on its prior experience with mm. that representation and then it might produce a snake and, you're like, and you, your heart rate will, will jump and then it will take a while before that sensory data then produces an error, which they call a prediction error. It's like, uh, I've actually predicted the wrong thing based on that. It's actually a, a rope. So this occurs in persistent pain. If you give someone a detailed anatomical model of the spine and the spine has a bunch of disc bulges on it and you can see the disc bulge protruding on the exiting nerve roots, and you can see where the static nerve then runs down the back of the leg and you start getting this vivid sensory information about what the potential cause of your back pain might be. The moment you get a little bit of sensory data or nociceptive data, mm. i.e. like some um, signals to the brain that might induce pain, if your model of what's happening on the spine looks something like this is probably the disc bulge, pushing on my nerve which is quite a threatening image your perceived um subjective sense of pain 
will be increased. So say if you have like a 10 out of 10, a zero to 10 pain score, you maybe perceive that as like a seven out of 10. Hmm. But if you don't have that anatomical knowledge and what you've been told is that uh, you just have like a tight muscle in your back and your back's actually very robust and it's hmm. strong and resilient and adaptable and um, able to increase its strength and loading capacity and, and um, flex, flexing forward is safe and okay, flexing backward is safe and okay, as long as you do it in a progressive, graduated way, then you'll, you might experience exactly the same sensory signal, but your brain will interpret that in a much less threatening way. And the output of the pain that you experience might be two out of 10. Like very different, like huge mm. order of magnitude indifference in the, the way you've perceived that sensory data. And that's why teaching anatomy is potentially very problematic because people will form models of their brain. And those models are often very um, threat inducing because it's like you see what a tear looks like on, on a scan, you see what a disc bulge looks like. Um, and then we try and uh, make sense of the sensory data based on those models. Mm. And those models are threatening models. So our subjective experience will tend to produce more pain. It's kind of what happened to me, you know, I, I knew what my pubic symphysis looked like. I knew how the two bones mesh together. I knew what the cartilaginous thing, and I, I looked on the models. I'm like, yeah, so it's probably because I've got this instability and that shearing on this pubic symphysis. It's creating this inflammatory effect. That means every time I take a step, I'm potentially creating more shear force mm. in that area and producing more inflammation. That makes me very reluctant to want to walk, mm. or it makes me reluctant to want to put any weight through that leg. So then I become fear avoidant about loading that leg. I become more deconditioned. I become tighter in all the muscles. The muscles get more restricted. They have less capacity to load. And that's a problem because I learned that information at uni. I learned the very detailed anatomy of the pelvis. Didn't help me. It made me kind of worse. Um, so I actually can't remember what your original question was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess from this discussion, most of us during some a point in our physical practice, right, we're going to experience some sort of form of pain. Maybe it's like an acute mm. pain or maybe it's like slowly building up some sort of chronic pain after a mm. few sessions. What's, what's a usable framework potentially that we could then use for our own self-assessment of what's happening? Okay. So here's the, the framework. So, um, you want to delineate firstly between what we would call like a red flag condition. So a red flag is you're at the gym and like a, a dumbbell fell on your shin and you have massive bruising and there's bone protruding out of the skin. Okay. Mm. In that case, the pain that you're experiencing probably reflects tissue damage because there was like a trauma involved and in the case of a fracture, you know, you, you actually do need to mobilize that. So you kind of want to delineate between like extreme um, uh, conditions such as, you know, fractures or, you know, like even some, in some cases, pain can be related to some sort of underlying systemic problem. Like, uh, you know, there's been many cases where people have gone to a physio for back pain for months and months and months and months and months. And it turns out that they have like a tumor or something on the spine, right? Mm -hmm. But those conditions are like reflect less than 1% of 
of persistent back pain. So it's, it's very quite, it's quite rare. So if you can exclude, and it's, it's quite easy to exclude that stuff, like mm -hmm. in a major structural pathology that's either trauma induced or based on like a systemic problem, most other musculoskeletal pains um, don't typically reflect tissue damage. And even if there is some kind of tissue damage, the body's very good at healing itself given the right conditions and the, the environmental conditions that tend to promote healing actually involve movement. Mm -hmm. So um, firstly, pain doesn't equal tissue damage. That's, that's an important distinction to make. So if you do have a shoulder problem or you have a back twinge, um, a lot of the time it's, it's not necessarily related to a structure that you can pinpoint often, like well before you've, you've injured yourself, you'll often get this like reflexive muscle guarding around an area mm. that will be employed almost like a reflex to prevent the organism from being further injured. And often that muscle guarding can become the source of pain if it's not worked through and, and moved around. Mm. Um, so, um, the, the, and the main, some of the main cognitive drivers of persistent pain are psychological variables like catastrophizing. Um, so be aware when you're experiencing a pain somewhere, like really be aware of what your thoughts are doing because your thoughts can drive your outcome. So I remember when I had my pain, I was very like, um, uh, I had like quite a negative future outlook and I thought, well, this means I'm probably not going to be able to surf anymore, or maybe this tear is never going to heal or this instability is never going to resolve itself. So catastrophic thinking is something that you want to watch out for. Um, having an optimistic future outlook, not being afraid to move and be creative and, and adjust your movement and maybe like back off the loading a little bit because sometimes it's just like acute overloading. We've, we've pushed too hard. We're very enthusiastic about our practice and we've, we've launched into it and maybe we've, we just need to like slightly modify or work around mm. the issue. Um, so I think maintaining movement is really important. It's one of the first things that my teacher said to me because after I got that knee injury that I mentioned, I, I just kind of stopped my, my yoga practice because I, I just didn't know how to work around it. It was just like, Scott, look, stopping moving. That's like the worst thing you can do. Everything just seizes up. Just work around. And he showed me a few examples. He got into a pose called trichinosis. It's like, if I've got a shoulder pain, then I just kind of relax my shoulder and maybe I'll move it here. Or just put it there and then go into the pose. And then that feels okay. Or if it's a hip pain, I just rotate my pelvis around a bit, back off. Maybe try this angle. That sort of back off a bit, mm. try that angle. So I'm still doing the pose. I'm finding creative ways of still getting my the, the organism to move and, and there's some conditions that will help to kind of cultivate healing um so for the vast majority of musculoskeletal pain if you uh change change the loading if it's acute back off a little bit let the nervous system kind of settle down and reintroduce movement early reintroduce movement you know like kind of as quickly as you can but it might be a modified movement mm. it might be a movement where the load has been reduced um but you're not you're not just stopping what you're doing you, you're trying to find creative ways to get your body to adapt and move around that and it'll it'll heal the body is very good at re returning to homeostasis mm. if you give, give the right conditions for it to do so um and sometimes stuff will stick around for a while and then when it does 
again, don't catastrophize. Don't automatically assume that it must mean you've got some sort of underlying structural problem that you then need to get scanned. Um, you need some sort of invasive um, procedure to fix. Most of the invasive um, uh, surgeries, injections, and procedures for persistent musculoskeletal pain don't outperform sham when tested under experimental conditions. Wow. And why is that? Well, in these studies, most people do better. So whether you had the, the, the knee surgery or the fake knee surgery, where they just do an incision and stitch you back up and you're under a general and you don't know what group you've been allocated to, both of those groups improve and both of them improve equally well. And that's because it's related to, you know, our beliefs. We then think, mm. oh, our knee must be more structurally sound now. Now it's safe to move. So if you can just remember that it's safe to move, you don't need to give yourself a placebo surgery or a placebo injection because most of the time that is precisely what you're on the receiving end of when you go and get one of these sort of interventions for pain. Mm, there's a lot a lot to dig into this, oh, isn't dude. it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, there's, there's heaps. Hey, it's like... It's a really big topic with so many different moving parts to it mm. that um, to give a kind of a brief overview, it can, it, it's, it's quite hard. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm hoping just as a general rule, some of that stuff mm. that I just said then, um, people can, can make sense of. And, and I guess the other thing is if you are still uncertain, see, you have to be really careful who you see. But you mm. you want to see a physio that, um, pre preferably actually has a movement practice of their own mm. because then they can relate to you. And this is a big part of the culture problem in physiotherapy and, and in medicine too, is that it's so academically driven and that tends to uh, privilege academia, which is why, you know, you need quite a high score or a TE score to get into medicine mm. and, and physio. Um, but you don't need like a good movement practice to get in there. And then they never actually assess you on your movement abilities. Mm. Um, so you want someone who preferably moves their body and has a good understanding of the biopsychosocial model and the pain science. And then usually what they'll do is they'll just give you a reassurance. Mm. Like a lot of my job is just someone will come in and I'll be like, yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's safe to move. Um, that, that scan you've got there, that's like a very normal finding for your age. Um, it's like, let's just gradually reintroduce movement to you and just build up week on week and get your capacity back. Um, so my job is just like, big percentage of it is like reassuring people, decreasing threat, increasing safety. Mm. Um, and you can kind of do that yourself. You know, you, you, can't, you don't always need to outsource that to someone else, but sometimes people are just worried. Yeah, because that's quite difficult. I think sometimes when pain signals can be quite overwhelming, right? Like you're there, mm -hmm. something's happened. You're like, this hurts. And I think once oh. it starts hurting, I mean, my, I myself and probably a lot of people, then you kind of like, check it all the time you're like yep still hurts yep still hurts yep still yeah. hurts and so yeah i guess if you were to outsource this to somebody else and were to try to take on this journey more of your own and try and remap mm -hmm. your beliefs to go okay this will be fine mm -hmm. how how could we actually do that i think what, this has been my experience too right so sometimes, especially if something's been sticking around for a while and you do see it out, like you have some patience and then eventually, like over a long enough period of time, if you do maintain your movement, you keep relaxed, you monitor your stress levels, you monitor your catastrophization, um, most musculoskeletal 
pains do have quite a good natural history, mm. which is to say they will tend to get better on their own. And musculoskeletal pain is quite closely correlated with psychosocial stress. So one thing I would get people to do is to notice what's going on in their life at the time that they started experiencing the pain. Because usually there's just like a big fog there. People are coming in. They'll, they'll tell me, look, Scott, like I've had this shoulder pain. It's like waking me up in the middle of the night and I get up in the morning and it's stiff. And like uh, kind of as the day goes on, it sort of loosens off a little bit. And uh, the first few laps swimming is just so uncomfortable. And then it starts to feel a bit better. But what's going on? I, I'm like, okay, what's happening in your life? They're like, uh, not much. Just like uh, my business is getting sued and uh, I just renovating my house and um, I've got a third kid on the way and um, I'm like having a real hard time with my marriage and they'll just start saying all this stuff as if it has nothing to do with the musculoskeletal pain. But we know those types of stresses will tend to increase Mm -hmm. muscle tension. They'll tend to increase sensitivity of the nervous system. They'll tend to promote inflammatory um, action from the immune system. So a little discomfort that might be quite innocuous can actually be amplified by some of those psychosocial stresses. And so what I get people to notice is that over a long enough period of time, those psychosocial stresses, they kind of ebb and flow. And often pain will kind of ebb and flow with those stresses. Or you can engage in activities to try and decrease your stress. So Mm. it it doesn't ebb and flow. But um, if you start to notice these patterns, and this happened to me, my, you know, my knee pain eventually got better. My knee is completely functional now. And so the next time that I have a discomfort, it's like my brain remembers like, oh, no, no. Remember that knee? That got better. It's okay. So the next one is kind of really de-amplified. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that, it'll be sore for a little bit, but I know it's going to get better. So really all I've done there is adjusted my outlook and ha- I have now have more of a, a positive outlook. Um, so I think these persistent pain things, when you have them, are really good learning opportunities to reinforce to yourself that most of the stuff is temporary. Most of it gets better with time. So sometimes initially you kind of just have to hang in there a little bit and have a little bit of faith. And then when you do get to that point where you're like really starting to second guess it, then it might be useful to talk to a friend who's also been through something like that, preferably a friend that's like part of the, um, you know, the movement community and they've got a good psychosocial understanding of pain and they'll, they'll give you good reinforcement too. So sometimes we need that social input. So it can, it can be hard if you're like a, an isolated Island there trying yeah. to navigate this whole thing yourself. I think this is where the community can be really important. And, and this is something that the, the movement community does really well is that, well, it's a community by definition. So there are, there are people there and it's very like pro-social and I think that kind of environment, particularly if it's geared around positivity around movement, it can really help people. And you just, just talk to other people who have been through a similar thing. And yeah, you, you'll find that most people have had some sort of pain. It's persisted for a while. Most of the time it's got better. Um, mm. So out, outsource it to your, your peers too. Yeah. And I guess this um, keep moving approach where you have to kind of be curious also is like you have to become less emotionally attached to maybe that thing that you're working towards. Like say you're working yeah. towards a really heavy squat and during one of the squats, then something flared up. Right. But then also to walk away from that squat, you, you know, you kind of die a little bit inside as well because you're like, oh, <laughs> I was working so hard for that and to modify yep. it, 
kind of always sucks. You know, when we do look to modify and you mentioned mm -hmm. about trying different things and yep. maybe taking down the load. Yeah. Like yep. how much do we have to back off? Would you normally have, would you normally say? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, it's, it's so easy to get attached to these movements um, and start to maybe get like a little bit of pride too and um, associate our sense of self with our mastery over some of these movements. And I, I, again, my, I have to credit this to my teacher who kind of explained this to me like this. So in, in yoga, you have these um, different um, subsets of sequences. So you might, you may have like, there's like a, a backbending component and there's an arm balancing component. There's like twists. Um, so he, he'd tell me all the time, like, you know, like these injuries are kind of normal. So if you hurt yourself when you're doing your backbending, you know, back it off and then, okay, now maybe this is an opportunity for you to like really try hard and improve your forward bend repertoire. And then you kind of just have to shift focus, just like let go of that for a while and just remember that it's always going to be there. And, and he used to always emphasize that it's like, like Scott, it's not a sprint. It's like, it's a marathon. You want to really be doing this stuff for the rest of your life. You've got so much time to improve your backbend. So if you have like some shoulder pain when you're backbending, um, do some of the other backbends that where the shoulders in extension instead of flexion. So you're still going to maintain your mobility and then just work on your forward bends, work on your twists, work on your arm bounces where your shoulders are only here. They're at 90 degrees, not overhead. And then, you know, then you can come back to it, try it out. Okay. Maybe it's still sore. That's cool try some other stuff and then, you know, gradually reintroduce that movement with time, but don't like worry and fret and um, feel like all of a sudden now you're incomplete because you can't do this, this movement. It's, it's common in the yoga world as well. Like, you know, mm. people get really attached to these series, particularly in the Ashtanga series. And they'll, there's, you know, a few of these advanced backbends, like couple toss in the way you grab your feet and stuff like that. And I've had to back that off many times where I've like, I don't know, like I noticed my, my hip flexor is just like really sensitized and doesn't like that amount of hip extension. Mm. So I just work on other stuff and I, I find other backbends where it feels okay. And like I get really good at those and then I reintroduce that later on. But um, sometimes, you know, people get on social media and they'll every week they'll be doing progress updates and a couple of tasks and look how good this is. And they get heaps of social credit points and lots of likes and comments. And then they, they're jumping in the series or, you know, they're just in the shala or the yoga school and they kind of know everyone's looking at them when they get to that pose and they're kind of doing it effortlessly. And all of a sudden they can't do it anymore. They get really sad. They're like mm. a lot of their self esteem kind of gets tied up in the mastery of that pose. And that's kind of not a good place where you, that you want to be. And I, I think that the, the movement should be making you feel good intrinsically. And like a lot of that external um, ego sort of stuff that you get can be problematic. It can, it can be a good driver too. Don't get me wrong. But when you're dealing with pain, you want to forget that shit and just make sure that it's like, yeah, it's more, to have more of a therapy focus at that time. Um, so yeah, I think that um, you also mentioned like the scale to which you want to back off. I think it's kind of subjective in, in a way. Um, so you, you want to recognize that you don't want to be like, at the end of the session, I think if you're like really kind of debilitatingly sore, you, you, that is a very good indicator that your loading needs to be reduced. But mm. if you're a, you know, a little bit sore and you can still function, it's not too bad, then maybe that's the level you want to be in. Or maybe you want to tinker with that a little bit. 
So I think that idea of trial and error, subjective play with it is mm. good. And, and you, you'll find that level where the pitch is just right, where you're getting into the position and whatever, if it's an overhead press or a backbend or something like that, where you're like, okay, that's, that's kind of my limit for today. And, and you can toy with it. Maybe that day you overdo it. Maybe the, you know, two days later you underdo it and you undercook it a bit. But eventually with enough practice, you'll find that, that right, just the right amount to tread. It's a fine line sometimes. Mm. That is definitely a skill you develop with practice. And you get better at it. The more you practice, you get better at knowing how much to back off. Mm. And we've all done it. We've all backed off too much. And we've all like mm. pushed too hard. And it's something that evolves as you get better. Sure. Yeah, I think this skill of auto-regulation is the way you've described it as well in terms of, yeah, maybe sometimes you just do it and you do too much. And maybe sometimes you're like, okay, I, I didn't do too much. And then you find yourself. Yeah. That really is an art that you have to develop for yourself. And that's almost where you have to walk away from this structured program mentality as well. Right. Because yep. everyone loves getting a program. Like, you know, yep. I'm the most excited when I get like some new phase, right. <laughs> yeah, But yeah. then it's that balance between, stick into the program and going like, you know, I'm going to do this to then at points just going, Hey, like actually, you know, there's some shit going on right now. I need to just chill out for a little bit. Maybe I don't need to do all this. Um, and that, that can be very hard. I think for very committed practitioners. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And I think that that's, um, uh, Maybe it's um, it's the same in in the, the movement culture world as well as the yoga world. Is that there probably tends to be like a bit more of skewing of the demographic, a bit more towards the type A pushing hard um, mm-hmm. personalities, and so there is this real bias towards wanting to like just finish the sets and finish the reps because that's in the program and it becomes very rigid and you you feel really good. It's like a really really good sense of satisfaction when you get through like a hard program. And so sometimes you feel like, oh, am I just being slack? Am I just like, being, you have that little internal dialogue with yourself. And I know from my experience, I'm definitely more prone to, to kind of overcooking the meal than, than undercooking it. So I have to kind of bias and adjust myself sometimes to like just pull the reins back a little bit. And, and, and that kind of attitude has helped me long-term and, and paradoxically, I think my improvement has been greater when I have a little bit more of a chilled approach to it. Um, and when I'm feeling good, then I'm like, I like, I'm happy to go hard as, as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, pushing too hard and being slack. There's, there's sometimes it's like we kind of polarize that, like, I didn't finish, I'm, I'm slack, I'm never going to get there. Uh, and again, this is just more, it's more self-talk and it's kind of just more dialogue and we have to be careful not to catastrophize if we have to back off a little bit and yeah. give ourselves a label like I'm a slack person. That's um, not, you've probably just been wise and having a good long-term approach. You know? This is almost like we're cultivating that practice of listening to your own thoughts and being observant really pays dividends in, say, in this context where we're going to be tested because we're facing an adversity such as like we're, we're injured, we're, we're in pain. Maybe we might cut catastrophize or on the other side, it's like, Oh, maybe we want to still keep on pushing, but we have to kind of just go, okay, like 
think clearly here like what what what's going on yeah yeah um yeah so it's um uh, i i i know for a fact that i've been guilty of definitely more in my track record i think early on i i learned how to, to strike that balance more and i think getting to know yourself a little bit like know what sort of personality type you are mm. some some people are uh a lot they find it a lot more difficult to rouse self-motivation intrinsically mm. and so that's where the practice provides the structure that's like really good because they're like oh you know like they wouldn't do it if the structure wasn't there um for, for someone like me I, I think i'm a little bit better at um well I, I have a tendency to just push anyway and so when i when i'm given a structure that's very rigid sometimes it's it can be problematic for me because i'll just stick to it mm-hmm. and um i i had to learn the hard way and just go through so many injuries and then be like shit i sh- you know what i should have done tonight i should have just gone and just backed off and done all these exercises over here for my legs and just left my shoulders alone and i would feel better the next morning but instead mm-hmm. i was like no i'm gonna stick to this and just do this arm balances all night and it's actually set me back. <laughs> you <know what> I <laughs> <mean>? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, like, yeah, how, how can we take notes and like learn from 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 this pain when it arises, so we don't 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 repeat the same? Um, yeah, like, what what are your thoughts on that? Is it is it again just yeah. being observant to what we were doing? Yeah, the the other thing that that I did for the first few years of my practice. Um, was to keep like really detailed notes of everything that I did. So mm. I would start to observe these patterns where I'd look back and I'd be like, you know, cause I, I would write down my programming, but I'd also write some notes of, about how I felt, you know, like was, was I dead felt good? Was I like, did I have pain in different areas or whatever? And like stuff like that, like a bit of a journal. Um, <laughs> and I think that um, journaling helped cause I'd look back and I'd be like, yeah, hang on a second. So I've got the same shoulder pain. What did I do last time? Yeah. Last time I just, you know, I, I did these extra sets. I didn't listen. And then I was sore for like a week afterwards. Whereas this time, okay, how about I try this? How about I just leave it alone for tonight and I come back and I just, just do legs and inversions today. And then I write down, you know, how I felt, felt, felt the next day. And the next day I'm like, okay, feel good. Great. Shoulder feels better. And then I look back and I'm like, okay, here I've got two different, approaches that i've taken to these the same thing and they have different outcomes and then you can start being a little bit more tuned in i think so so even now i mean to a lesser extent now but i still keep like a little bit of a, a record of what i've done but i i'm a lot more intuitive now about how i feel i think i've kind of developed that um sense over the years because I've, I've been doing it for mm. you know a while now actually like 13 years so mm. um in that time um that little auto regulation um mechanism is just like a lot more fine-tuned for me but i did have to like i had to learn, earn that skill and mm. i think that the diarising really helped me um, but again that's like a subjective thing i think everyone has a bit of a different approach to that something's going to work for some personality and something might not work for another one so yeah definitely you know, um for what you mentioned as a teacher as well, when you deal with the the student who might be coming up with, yeah, that they, they complain of some pain, right? 
Mm-hmm. Let's say it's sort of acute. Apart from what you mentioned all through there, which I see as like being very applicable, like, well, it's the same thing, right? Just to, to, to not yourself, but to somebody else. But yeah, what are the extra sort of considerations or layers do we have to think about when we're trying to guide somebody as well after this sort of post-traumatic event? Yeah, I think um, um, one of the things that has helped me the most in, in that regard is by going through all of those processes myself and you know like over a long enough period of time you're going to have you're going to experience some back pain if you practice for long enough it's just going to show up at some point mm. and you're going to experience some shoulder pain you're going to get like a little knee niggle and you'll have to go through that process yourself so when i'm in informing my students um i feel like i have a, quite um an empathetic sense of what's going on with them and that really informs me and you know i tell you what like i would not have the confidence to instruct people the way that i do now if i hadn't experienced a lot of these things myself so when i'm when i'm relaying this information i kind of do it in a sort of mirroring kind of way so the person's there with me and you know you can't always do this it depends on your energy levels Mm -hmm. but but sometimes like I'll, i'll go through the positions with them and they'll be in a particular part in that range and they'll be like like yeah it's it's sore here and like i'll be in that position i'll be like right and then i'll I'll play around with it myself i'll be like right okay i'll lower my hips down and i'll just feel what that feels like on my own body and be like okay that i feel like i'm like really decreasing pressure in that area if i do this so then i'll say okay just like lower your hips down and just just change your pelvic to it a little bit how's that feel i'm just like yeah better okay that's that's where you want to be now okay just let's just stick with that level just for you know, like a few days or the next week. That's your practice for the next week. Just just mm. go to there, and then we'll, we'll just kind of play around with that. I'll be like, okay, what about this pose? Same thing. So they'll do it, and I'll kind of like get in there with them, whether it's a forward bend or whatever. I'm stretching my leg up, and and I think because I'm I'm practicing this stuff every day myself, a lot of the time I, I already know what the good modifications will be because I've I've been there at some point, mm. and so I'll, maybe I'll just reel off a few of those. I'm like, okay, how about you just bend your knee and just like you know just decrease the flexion slightly externally how does that feel there so i i feel like i've got a a good sense now of some of the small modifications that you can make to a position so the person can still do it and and feel okay Mm. Uh, and if i wasn't practicing myself there's just no way i would have access to that knowledge um, so the, the more we practice and experience this and go through some of these pains but definitely the, the better teachers and instructors would become particularly if we have that mindset to like okay keep you know let's keep moving let's find creative ways to work around it Mm. then you can just like from a really fresh um objective like authentic place provide those modifications to people because you've experienced them yourself sure we all have different body types so i'm sometimes up you know i'll have to find other ways to relate but usually it works you know that having that kind of approach and how can we delineate between maybe something where that they should potentially push through versus something where go okay like let's just back off modify change it yeah i usually like i like i have a bit of a look at their techniques if the technique is like quite bad Mm. or they're kind of like i don't know i mean i i feel like a little bit self-conscious when i use the term uh 
technique or alignment or whatever because it, it's it's kind of has a little bit of a stain to it but but sometimes like you might look at someone's form and their form just isn't isn't that good and then you know you don't really want to get them to push through if their approach isn't isn't looking too great so I'll, you know firstly i'll kind of modify that position mm-hmm. and be like okay i'll get them into a position that where i feel like i'm like working quite well and like where the mechanics kind of line up pretty nicely like okay, try it from there and then I'll be like, okay, what, like, what, give me the, what is the nature of that feeling? Like, just can you describe it to me? Point to where it is. Tell me what it feels like. And I, I usually get a sense of what, what's going on there based on, on their reaction. Sometimes I'll, you know, um, I do this every now and then, and you definitely don't need to do this, but like, I'll just like palpate the muscle, the area with my thumb and I'll get a bit of a feeling and just see how sensitized they are. And, and a lot of the time, you know, it'll be kind of like muscle guarding discomfort that they're experiencing. Mm. And um, yeah, just there, there are a few cute, like clues that you can get, um, like nonverbal clues that you can get based on someone's, you know, uh, pain behaviors that they will, you know, show you. And whether it's grimacing or like a real tightening up and there's some objective signs as well. You know, there might be some significant swelling that you can notice or there's some bruising around an area and there are usually some signs where I'll be like, okay, let's you know, maybe back off. Maybe not too. It's really, it's really individual. It's hard to give a too much of a prescriptive mm-hmm. um, methodology for, for balancing that. But I'll tell you what, the better you know your student, the better a relationship you have with them, the longer you spend with them, the easier it is for you to, to, to delineate between this uh, you know, pain that maybe represents a noxious stimulus and pain that can be worked through. So I think building the relationship is really important. And, and that's something that I, I had with my teacher. You know, I went and saw him. I'd go to his house like three times a week. We'd practice together and then we'd just kind of hang out and we'd chat and we'd come just talk. We like became friends, you know. Um, and that way he could get me into some positions where I would just not trust anyone else to get me into and, um, where he just probably wouldn't feel as confident adjusting some random person off the street, even if they had exactly the same body type, because he just doesn't have the background, doesn't know the person that Mm. well. So I think that is a piece of the puzzle that is, is really important too. So you want to cultivate that as best you can. Yeah, definitely. That, that social relationship, um, and I like how you mentioned how it works both ways with both the teacher then understanding and feeling more comf- comfortable to instruct somebody into that way. And then the student also feeling, okay, anybody else asking me this wouldn't they normally, normally hear this in like deep stretching sort of like uh, workshops or something like some, some, mm-hmm. some uh, they've cultivated this environment where everybody is trusting and uh, you know, they're all like, you know, you're going to go into this pancake and then suddenly someone's in their deepest pancake ever because it's, it's been in this special environment. So I can relate to this. Um, but I wanted to gather mm. your thoughts on this uh, concept of robustness. So we've talked mm. about pain, injury, sort of management, maybe like post-event. What yeah. about prehabilitation? This sort of concept of, okay, can we be, can we prepare ourselves to avoid injury? And if so, how do we become prepared and robust? Mm, okay. Interesting topic. So, um, well, it depends on how you want to fill it that one. 
So, um, because there's there's two different sides that that coin. So one side might be um, trying to do specific exercises for injury prevention for like specific sport or activities. Mm-hmm. And and the funny thing is that there actually isn't a great correlation between um, doing specific um, prehabilitation exercises and injury rates in, in sports. And one of the reasons for that is because um, pain uh, and injury to an extent are very multifactorial and, and biopsychosocial. So as I mentioned, like you could do a lot of um, glute med strengthening exercises, um, which so this used to get prescribed for, you know, in, in AFL when there was this osteitis pubis um, diagnosis that a lot of footballers were getting given. So they did these like prehabilitation programs. But, you know, like because pain may be more related to thought processes, catastrophizing, psychosocial stress and stuff like that, sometimes it's a little bit too reductionist. So that's one side of the coin. It can be hard to apply preventative exercises and then expect them to have outcomes in in other activities, right? Um, But but on the other side of the coin, um, there's this uh, conception, particularly in... um, I, I noticed this show its face in in the gym settings, like the conventional gym settings and in the the yoga community, that there are certain positions that we just shouldn't get into that are just, you know, maybe inherently bad or something like that, or inherently have like an injury risk associated with them. And some of these um, positions, some of the classics are like loaded flexion of the spine, um, loaded squats where the knees go past the toes, um uh, in, in yoga it's like headstands so there was like a narrative a few years ago and this book came out called how yoga will wreck your body like this inflammatory journalistic piece that was published in the mm-hmm. new york times talking about all these neck injuries and how headstand and inversions are really bad but but we know with like a progressive graduated exposure approach that the body will kind of increase its resiliency in certain ranges if you give it the stimulus because the body is like highly adaptable Mm. to new stimulus. So in the case of headstand, I think people will be more likely to have neck pain if they go straight into like a 10 minute headstand when they rock into a general um, anger class and they have no preparation. And often then they'll correlate that neck pain with some sort of structural damage. They've hurt themselves, they've ruptured a ligament or something like that. And so then there becomes a fear of avoidance around headstanding or it's the same with the knees over toes. Someone just isn't conditioned enough to do a sissy squat and they do a few and then they get some patellofemoral pain and they're like, that's a bad movement. Hmm. Knees shouldn't go past the toes. Where in actual fact, if you you just like slowly apply the stimulus to your body, allow this kind of reconditioning to occur, then you'll get adaptation and so the adaptation is both peripheral and central. So I think you get like an adaptation peripherally, i.e. Your, your muscles will get stronger and you'll have an increased ability to access ranges. But the, um, the adaptation is also like neurological and uh, psychological. It's, like, it's cognitive. So you'll perceive these positions as being less threatening. And we know when we perceive things as threatening, 
the body will tend to like tighten up a little bit. You have this like increase in sensitivity. So if you've been told that squatting with the knees over the toes is harmful for your patellofemoral joints and might lead to osteoarthritis in your knees or something like that, then again, you might get this little bit of patellofemoral discomfort sensation after a set the next day and you'd be like, oh, now I've quote unquote damaged my knee. I better not do that anymore. But some muscular, your general discomfort when you're learning a new skill is, is kind of normal and to be expected as part of the retraining process. And that shouldn't be confused with causing structural damage. Um, so I think my view is that the body is like inherently much more adaptable and resilient and non-fragile than we tend to think that it is. And part of that has to do with the graduated exposure peripherally and then also, you know, not again, like kind of catastrophizing these aches and pains that we get might get after trying something new or going into a new range. You know, like, I don't know, there's probably a few examples in the, in the movement world where people have been told, oh, you know, certain gymnastics rings exercises are bad for the shoulder and they're called rotator cuff tears. In yoga, it's like you do this chaturanga, which is like this push-up position. If your elbows, if your chest goes past the elbows, past 90 degrees, and you'll strain like a rotator cuff muscle, mm-hmm. it's like, Sure, you might actually get a bit of soreness in your shoulder if you're just not conditioned enough to do that movement and you just jump straight into it and you did 50 of them in a class. Mm. A, it has nothing to do with probably structural damage. And, and B, if you would like back off the load and then just apply this graduated approach, then your, body's, your body will adapt. Mm. And like, you see like really cool examples of this in, in the yoga community where you get people doing very advanced range exercises where they'll be getting their foot up around their head um, or they'll be balancing on the outside of their ankle. Um, but that, they've kind of progressively got into that position. It becomes a normal movement. And I noticed this with my persistent pain when like I, I was very fear avoidant about squatting mm-hmm. because I, I, it would feel really uncomfortable on my knees. Like I had this patellofemoral pain that was really sore in, condition, in, in conjunction with that pelvic pain. Um, and I remember like a turning point for me was like going to Bali back in 2008. And this is like, I'd been practicing for nine months. And so I was still like pretty raw with my practice. So I still had a bit of a limp. I remember walking through the airport and they were renovating the airport and there were a few of these Balinese guys up on, you know, this dodgy scaffolding that they have there, health and safety is out the window, but they were squatting down and it's like really deep squat kind of moving around, just like effortlessly standing back up. And I'm like, oh, dude, these guys are like in their 40s and they're moving way better than me. Mm. That squatting position looks so natural. I just haven't been doing it. I haven't been exposing myself to it. So, of course, it like hurts. I'm going to have a swollen knee if I just try and do it now. But like little by little, I started to build my capacity in that movement. Mm. And now squatting looks like completely natural to me. I love it. It feels great. But like it, it just took a bit of time, you know, and, um, and it took a little bit of like, reassurance and faith and i think seeing people these guys on the on the rice paddies the guys are squatting out the front of their store where they're selling shoes like all day i'm like hang on a second that's this is normal move and this is very natural like mm. these these guys just do it and they've done it since they're kids so they've just their body and their and their mind in a sense has adapted to the normalization of that movement pattern and that's mm. what i need to do so when we're approaching new movements this idea of resiliency is kind of like based on, okay, let's not 
freak out and, and know that this is kind of like a position that the body can get into if we kind of like just trust and, and go slowly and um, not, not worry too much. I think the worry and the fear is a big part of what decreases our resiliency. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. It's uh, it keep on circling back to this uh, this saying that I know that I've said before, which is like focus dictates your reality. So it's like we, yeah. if you're focused on this belief that you know movement is bad or certain movements are bad, then it it becomes bad. But then if you're you've uh, stuck with a different sort of crowd, which tells you that okay, like yeah, of course that's going to hurt because you've never done that before. But if you just keep on trying, then you're going to get better at it. Then the outcome can be completely different. Yeah. No, and this is where I blame um, the physiotherapy profession <laughs> for, for not, um, for not doing that. And, and I remember my teacher, cause you know, he started teaching yoga back in the early eighties. And he was like, God, the amount of arguments that he had with physios back then where a student would come to the class and they'd be like, Oh no, my physio told me that I can't twist. I can't bend forwards and um, I can't backbend. And he's like, does that, that physio does not know what they're talking about. You can do it. You're not that fragile. Mm. Like, and so these narratives that we get taught at, at uni are, are and myself, in, in teaching, like I went to, I did his teacher training. That's how I, I became qualified. Cause I was like, I just want to learn more. And honestly, man, like he would get people into positions that would just shock me because he had so much confidence and he kind of, he just knew, he knew the, the way that the body could move. Whereas me, after going through this four year degree, I just felt like I want to wrap everyone in freaking cotton wool and go, Oh, that might, that might damage. Oh, uh, and that is the, that's the kind of psychological mindset that a lot of these new grads are coming out with. And well, at least in, in my generation, and I think it's a bit different now, but still, it's still there. It's still very pervasive in society and community, mm. this cotton wool approach. And it makes people worse, makes people not trust their body. Um, and, and it just, it, it saddens me when, when I see that, but I think that the remedy is in the, the slow process of mindset change. Like you said, mm. you, someone will have a strongly entrenched belief that movement is harmful or that a movement is harmful. And so you kind of like getting them just to experiment with that. And then maybe with your reassurance and then looking at other people in the movement gym or in the physio clinic, like where I work, I'm, this is where you get a, the most buy-in or get someone who's coming in who's really fear avoidant about moving. And then one of my other clients has been seeing me for years, like, oh, I used to be like that. I couldn't bend down, I couldn't squat, I couldn't touch my toes. And now they're up against the wall doing handstands, their moving practice is really fluid. And the person's like, oh, really? You, you couldn't do that either? Then that's like a part of the belief change. Mm. They, start to, they start to see real world evidence of it, like empirical evidence of it. Um, and I actually find like relating my story I don't do it all the time, but if someone is really fear avoidant, you know, I'll give them a little bit of my own background. I'll say, man, look, I was like worse than you. Like, I couldn't even bend down time on shoelaces. And, and now I'm fine and you'll also be fine too. So like, and they go, oh, really? I thought you must have always been flexible or whatever. I'm like, no, no way. I was like the most unflexible person. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even reach down past my knees. Um, so it's like, 
And again, that, that's part of this sort of social aspect of um, mindset change and belief change. And like I said, getting people to change their focus, the community that they hang out with mm. is really important. If you've been hanging out with physios and surgeons and chiropractors for a couple of years and getting them, giving you all this nocebic advice, i.e. words that kind of make you feel like you're under threat all the time, you're going to, yeah, that, that mindset and that focus will start to dictate all the sensations that you feel and you'll just feel like your, your body's under siege all the time. The whole thing will feel like it's just falling apart. Mm. And you, you like, then you go, you walk into like a movement gym or a yoga school and you see all these bodies that are moving around really effortlessly. Then you hear some narratives like, nah, I used to be really sore and in pain all the time. Now I'm not. And it's like, oh, maybe I can do that too. You know, uh, that, that's, um, that's a big part of the, the package that I think. This is, like relating to that concept of self-efficacy, right? And then it's uh, yeah. it's almost like that that big challenge for uh, for us presenting like a different method as well is to also be mindful that maybe some people have been almost indoctrinated so heavily with these other worlds, um, and we can't just completely step past through that in you know like a five-minute conversation, right? We've got to sit yep. down and start really understanding them. Like you said, mm. if you've got a story as well, relating to them in that way. And then over time, then that change really starts happening because you've got to un- unwind back so much stuff, right? In, in the mind. Big time, man. Yeah. You know what? Like, um, I, like I, I've had a few of these anecdotes, but like one that really sticks out to me is this the guy that he was 45 and he went and saw a surgeon for his hip pain when he was 40 um which you know that that pathway from gp to specialist to surgeon is is way too easy um and it unfortunately it's like far too common um so there's, there's absolutely no way that he should have been in front of a surgeon to begin with but anyway the surgeon said oh yeah no i don't think you need to have any surgery now but probably in a few years that hip regenerated maybe in five years or so you might need to have a hip replacement mm. but you're okay now you know as if that was somehow like a good thing to say to the person so obviously five years later he starts to have like a reoccurrence of his hip pain he comes in his very fear avoidant he has a very biomedical view of what's causing the pain i.e joint degeneration it's bone on bone rah, rah, rah. you know what he was actually just like had just heaps of muscle guarding and tightness all around his hip um uh because you know he, he overloaded it in the gym plus he had a bad narrative when he was 19 he was in a car accident where he had some like injury to the bone i mean it would have all healed by now but he had that little acute overloading injury with a leg press machine at the gym felt some discomfort in his glute muscle his mind then tried to make sense of that with the narrative that remember you're in that car accident you really injured your hip when you're 19 it's better get the scan, see if it's check, you know, see if it's okay. Scan comes back, some joint degeneration, which is normal for someone who's 40 to have some joint degeneration on scans, right? But then this narrative then gets reinforced by that imaging. And so he had like some very strong beliefs about what was causing his pain. And here I come in to the picture, you know, like a someone he's never met before. And then I try and have this conversation with him that no, 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 you'll be all right. We just need to kind of get them moving, loosen off the muscles in that area, just gradually expose you to some of these new positions. And, um, you know, the pain is um, caused by some sensitization of your nervous system, probably has very little to do with that scan. In fact, that scan's probably not really relevant to why you have pain at all. Right. Now, 
he didn't just immediately change his mind. He was very <laughs> skeptical and he was very apprehensive and he was so guarded with his movement. I'd get him to do some basic lunge work and he'd just be, you know, he'd tense up and he'd go to rotate his foot out and he'd be like, ah, he'd get like small sensations. But the, the, his mind was perceiving those as potentially harmful. But like a slow process gradually got him moving. And, and uh, this was like a couple of years later, right? And this is when the penny like really dropped for him. And now he's like one of my biggest advocates, but he called me and he said, I finally understand it. I said, I, I was walking along and um, I had this conversation with, with my mom and he like unloaded all this personal stuff to, to his mom um, that was burdening him for a long time. And he was like, his mom just took it really well. I was like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Just move on. And then he was like, for the next like five Ks as I was walking back from the train station, I was just walking along with no pain and no limp. And I was like, he just kind of like looked down at himself like as, as a third person observing his body. I was like, wow, what the hell? And then he made this connection between this like um, his psychological state, which was like a feeling of relief. And then this, you know, he was no longer really preoccupied with his hip anymore. He was like, I, I, I kind of, I finally get all that stuff you were telling me about how my mm-hmm. mindset stress influences my pain. You know, he also had other, or a bunch of other stress going on in, in his life. And that all started to resolve and it kind of correlated with this overall like dampening down of his nervous system of these adrenaline hormones that were going through. And he just could see the link. So he had to experience that. It was like this experiential insight. So I could give him the theory and I could give him some experiential cues with the practice because he started and you know, his practice really improved. But, you know, he still had this lingering doubt, like maybe it's still the bone on bone. Maybe it's still my hip degeneration that's causing this pain. But he had to have that insight. And once he had that insight, he's been like pain-free since then because now he recognizes when he's under stress, he sees those muscles tighten up and now he's in control. And I was like, ah, that tightening sensation is no longer perceived as damage, that's perceived as a reaction of his nervous system to stress. And that delineation that he made causes his pain to go from like an eight out of 10 to like barely a one. He'll feel it and then his, it's like his brain will immediately dismiss it as being relevant to his state of survival or to a state of threat. Um, but he, that was kind of a long journey for him, right? Because he was so far gone. It's almost like deprogramming a cult member you can't just tell them that their cult's full of shit. You have to like kind of go through a process and eventually that behavior change, that mindset change takes time. And it's the same thing with our beliefs about pain and the body and, and movement, I think. I loved how you mentioned how you helped him with some of the theory and the experiential cues, but still it was on him to live within his experience to then finally let go. And I guess that's Definitely. all we can do as yeah, as guiders and, and, and teachers as, as well. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's like an empowering model too. And mm. you know, like and my teacher got, got me on the same thing. Like I had this persistent wrist pain um, that was, you know, I had widespread pain. It was mostly in my pelvis, but like I, I couldn't actually write or type too long on the computer without having this freaking pain. And he showed me a few of these poses to do this, like rope, actually rope hanging poses. Right. Um, and like after a few weeks, it was still there and like a month, it was still there. And I, I said to him, like, you know, I was a little bit um, pessimistic. I said, no, don't worry, you'll figure it out. 
And I wasn't sure how to take that. I was like, is he being dismissive or I was like, no, no. And I took it. I was like, okay, I'll figure it out. And actually that is very empowering. The problem with the physio model is that they want short-term symptom relief. Mm -hmm. The person comes in and they think that what they need to provide that person is like a short-term, oh, he's still in pain. He walks out. I haven't done my job. I was still in pain and I walked out of that session. But what I was given was this empowered narrative that I will figure this out. And of course I did. And now they're fine. Right. So that, that's like a, a culture difference between, mm-hmm. I think like, you know, like well, well prescribed yoga and the, the movement community and what we, we are seeing in the healthcare industry. One is like a, a person centered empowered model. And the other is this like paternalistic model. that says, I'm going to fix you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we want to move away from that because persistent pain does not respond well to this passive treatment this i will fix you kind of approach that's a bad approach just, there's no evidence that it really helps people at all in fact it tends to promote more dependence and it tends to promote chronicity mm-hmm. yeah and in the end i think that's what, what we want to promote this independence right like not that this yeah. stu- student is always going to be tied to uh you know godly teachings or anything like that it's like hopefully they can just walk away and and be be empowered right but um i I guess closing on this uh concept of robustness there was one other question that i wanted to ask which was uh, do do you believe that there is something as a sort of set of standards or foundational sort of movement patterns that all humans or maybe like when you start your students on that they should be able to Mm. cover and do yeah man because when i was going through that yoga um, book that I told you and I was trying to do this program, you know, like I said, I got to week 13 mm. and I, I couldn't do half of it. And I ended up injuring myself. And, and the reason for that is when I analyzed the poses, I was like the amount of hip flexion there, like I don't have that. And that's because, you know, I figured that I don't squat, you know, I don't squat down or at least I wasn't back then I was never getting down the floor. And it's because like, you know, in, in modern industrialized nations, we don't have a floor culture. And I think there's only a few places in the world that still has that, like in Korea and Japan and parts of India um, and, and some other parts of Asia too, like when you go to Indonesia as well. So this ability to like sit cross-legged on the floor with the hips open out to the sides, this ability to squat down comfortably. Um, and, you, you, and you go to any, any um, developing nation, you'll see like the squat toilets there. Actually, in, in, you know, like in Singapore and stuff, Sometimes you have a choice between the squat toilet mm. and the, <laughs> the Western toilet. And I always go to the squat toilet. And I think it's such a fundamental movement pattern. So squatting and lunging and like these movements like horse stance, you know, like um, back in a um, pre-industrialized world and which is where most of these yoga practices originated. They just assumed that you walked a lot Um you were doing some fairly heavy manual work. So if you wanted to get water, so there's, there's a book that I've got, um, the Yoga Pradipika, which is, I think was written in the 1800s. And you see these murals of these yogis practicing these poses, mm. but in the background they've illustrated these yogis who are down by the well, like picking up water and walking upstairs with these big buckets of water on their head. Um, so movement patterns like the horse stance, because they're kind of in horse stance to, to collect the water. Um, so they're building strength in their muscles in a squatting position, in lunging positions. Um, you know, you, they sit down cross-legged, which for those listening who can't see me right now, 
Um, but, you know, you're sitting cross-legged at the dinner table and someone says, you know, oh, can you pass me a salt? So you grab hold of the salt, you rotate your spine, you reach around, you lean over and you hand it to them. So naturally, you're kind of mobilizing your spine and twisting movements. Um, you're getting like extension and flexion in the spine. You're getting external rotation, like i.e. glute stretches, like in your 90-90 position in the hips, your pigeon pose. It's kind of inherently getting done by your daily activities. So whenever I'm talking to people about this stuff, I'm like, you know what, when you're playing with your kids, get down on the floor, squat with them, cross a leg and move with them, like play games with them, try and like, be as much of uh, like think about the environment that you would live in 500 years ago. What would you have to do? You'd have mm. to get down before you'd have to ca carry loads. You have to squat a lot. You'd have to like sit cross-legged. You'd have to walk a lot. Um, and you'd probably have to do like, I don't know, different things. Like you'd have to jump. There'd be rivers you'd have to cross. So there's a few of these things like jumping, I think is really important. Like plyometric jumping, like explosive jumping, um, deep squatting, spine movements, spine rotation, spine flexion, spine extension. Now, and, and again, like you're hanging stuff. Um, so we're climbing, like we're very apt climbers, um, but we tend to live in environments where we can just take an escalator and we never have to climb anywhere. So mm. I think like that, that stuff where you're, you're hanging or you're doing like rope work or inverted work, I think is, is really important too. So yeah, primitive movement patterns. Mm. I think they're the, they're the fundamentals because the, the yoga poses that I see, they almost take as a given that you're really good at these primitive movement patterns because they were created in a culture where you just survive. You had to be good at it. Mm. And so now we get people who sit in an office chair all day and they then try and get into the lotus position and they hurt themselves because they hadn't been conditioned to be able to have the necessary muscle length and strength to be able to get into these traditional poses. And then they hurt themselves. So yeah, that, that's what I try and emphasize a lot with my, with my clients and people I'm seeing, like just get back to the basics, you know? Yeah. No, I love that approach and uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And again, just even though you might operate under a slightly different label, such as under the banner of yoga, it's like, it's the same, it's the same thing <laughs> with, with, yeah. all the, with all those patterns. It's um, yeah. I always have to smile when I, when I hear, hear this sort of thing. Yeah, for sure, man. So hopefully I can um, re-indoctrinate um, uh, some of your listeners into what, <laughs> what yoga can be and mm -hmm. not what it perhaps is seen to be um, in, in the modern world. So I think there's, there's, you know, hopefully like a bit of a revival of more of the, the old um, practices and approach and mindsets to yoga. And when we see that start to infiltrate into you know, the yoga curriculums now and, and, and change that because it can be really good. It can be like a really mm. cool, cool thing that I think people should be interested in. And, um, and look, I know Ido is interested in it as well. And he actually works with a teacher of my teacher, Shandor Remito, mm. and practices some shadow yoga. Mm -hmm. um, so Shandor's really cool and he emphasizes those same points about the importance of like pr traditional movement patterns, uh, primitive movement patterns. And so I think that's why he and Ido hit it off. Um, so there are some really good yoga practitioners out there and instructors if, if you seek them out. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's like anything, like there are some average teachers and then there are, you know, always the, the outstanding teachers and we should always be seeking out their, their sort of guidance, but you know, maybe to, to round it, round it off. If, if people were interested in finding out more about 
you know, this side of yoga, is there a text or some sort of place where they could read and get more of that perspective following on from this chat that you would recommend? Yeah. So there's a few scholars that I follow pretty closely and have like looked at their work over the years. So if people were interested in, in like pre-modern sources of yoga, then if you type into Google, um, the Hatha yoga project, this is like a five year project from, uh, I like think the European council of art are given this grant to explore the pre-modern origins of yoga. So the scholars who are working on this are some of my like, uh, intellectual, uh, idols, um, guys like James Mallinson, um, who I've got like a lot of his books and read all of his work and, um, and there's, uh, uh, I won't give justice to all the names, but like Jason Birch and Jacqueline Hargraves who run this website called The Luminescent that's looking at specifically at that Hatha Abhyasa Parity text that I mentioned at the very beginning. And they're like deconstructing that and they're trying to disseminate these um, poses and they actually made this reconstruction project of this text where they got a few practitioners to go through and practice and get into all these positions, the rope climbing positions and stuff. Like I've been doing that on my own on my Instagram page. If you'll mm. see, like I've gone through the Sri Tatravandi and, and tried to show like, you know, the, the chariot pose, right. And um, demonstrate that the, there's some really interesting and uh, engaging movement practices in the pre-modern text that we should be like shining a bit more of a light on. So if you type in the Hatha Yoga Project, and then just look at the scholars who are involved in that project. They all have their own websites mostly and Twitter pages and Instagram pages. And then you can just begin that journey and find out what's out there. Very, very cool. I think, yeah, I, after this, I'm going to try and jump on and have a bit of a Google myself and see, see what I dig up. Yeah. Uh, awesome, for, man. Yeah. For all the listeners as well, you know, if they wanted to get in touch with uh, yourself, look in, more deeply into your work as well, where could you point them towards? Um, yeah, so my website, innerfocusphysio.com.au, um, or my Instagram page where I share a lot of my stuff. So IF for inner focus, so IF physio. Um, and I think I've got a Twitter handle as well, but I think the link to that is on my website. So you can jump on there and, and have a bit of a look around. Um, but yeah, I, I try and like put a lot of stuff on my, um, uh, Instagram, like interesting sort of informative stuff. So yeah, a lot of what I spoke about in relation to pain science and pre-modern yoga, I've kind of like um, delved into a fair bit on that page. So uh, yeah, if people are interested, they can jump on there and check it out. Yeah, I do have to thank you for sharing, you know, some of that stuff. Um, just doing some research, you know, for, for this chat as well and going through those posts. It was, uh, yeah, it was really, really interesting and really well put. So I do highly recommend that to anyone who's listening and um i just want to say thank you uh for joining me for, for tonight we went yeah we went into all sorts of directions and i think you know especially around the whole pain science and injury that sort of thing it yeah it, it really was good remind well not even reminders but like it got me to think about things in a different way and i can't wait to listen back over to this chat once again yeah cool man. now it's a pleasure um now i love love um, being here and thanks for having me on and um, look forward to listening to your upcoming podcast man we should definitely stay in touch hey yeah definitely I uh, keep on saying it to the guys like I'm going to do a, a trip over to Perth whenever you guys open the borders up and <laughs> that's it yeah then, then yeah, um... yeah. We're, we're happy with open arms mate so um, yeah. yeah as soon as this uh, this whole worldwide crisis sorts itself out <laughs> then hit us up 
and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll host you at Inner Focus, man. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. Scott White, guys, IF Physio, Inner Focus Physio. I really got a lot out of that chat. I loved how he broke down that framework into approaching injury and pain, especially that point around catastrophizing and reducing those thought patterns or being aware of them. Hope you guys enjoyed that one as well. I got a lot more coming up for you, a lot of interesting guests I'm really excited to show you. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, please remember once again, share it with a friend, post it on your page, on your social, spread it out. It really helps me spread these great conversations to more people. And if you have any suggestions, any questions as well, please feel free to reach me. You can find me at Instagram, at Fayonp, that's at P-H-A-O-N-P, or you can go to the website, thepassivehang.com, and there's my details on there, and you can send me a message. So until the next episode, I will catch you guys then. Thanks.